The Jeremy White Show. Our next guest is a member. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. His latest record, KK's Priest, featuring former Judas Priest members KK Downing, of course, Tim Ripper Owens in there as well. Brand new record coming out on September 29th. You can pre-order The Sinner Rides Again wherever you get your music. Welcome back to the show, the one, the only, KK Downing. How's it going? Hi, Jeremy. Fantastic, mate. Uh, good to speak to you, buddy. It's always great to see you. You know, uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about the first time I saw you performing live. And um, it was actually mind-blowing for me because it was the first time I was ever front row at a concert on the barricade right in front of the guitar player. And you came out rocking the leather, the flying V, like just all of it. And the lights were blinding <laughs> right behind you. And I'll never forget that because it was just one of those moments. You know, I don't know if you've ever like coming up, maybe you when you were going to concerts and stuff. I'm sure you've had that moment where like you're standing there like, with like, wow, this is cool, you know? <laughs> And that that was my that was like like one of my first ever like this is cool moments at a concert. So I just wanted to tell you about that. So where was that, Jeremy? That was in Montreal at the Montreal. Bell Center. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been like the Epitaph World Tour or something like that, or one of those. Yeah. Yeah, but it was so cool. I I I'll never forget that. What was was production like stage production always a big thing for you guys? Yeah, it was really. I mean, I think uh, every uh, aspiring younger band as we were then in the uh very early 70s you know you just dream of those big productions you know uh just like your favorite bands that uh that would come around and that you would see that had something you know because we in england you know you would see obviously pink floyd and genesis and and rush had a great show and you know, lots of great bands, and uh, you thought, oh, if only I could be up there on that stage with that big production. So, you know, if you work hard and long enough and stick at it, inevitably it grows and grows, and that's what happened to uh, to Judas Priest. Yeah. Were you, you mentioned Rush, great Canadian band. Were you a fan of Rush at all? You're a fan of everybody, you know, <laughs> growing up because everybody – you know, you have to have that realization that all of these great bands, you know, and 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 um, you know, us guitar players, we we everybody has fingerprints, don't they? No mm. two guitar players play the same, and everybody can do something better and or different than you can't. You know, um, no one guitar player can have it all, but some players don't need to have everything because what they've got is good enough, you know, and it, and it's great, you know, um, you know, the great Jimi Hendrix, you know, I mean, um, he may not have been able to play jazz or flamenco or, you know, I had various uh, techniques in his uh, arsenal, but what he had was more than enough for more than one guitar player for sure, you know. Yeah. And especially guys, you know, like like Paige and uh, just yeah. Hendrix and and Beck. Uh, you know, they were they were so good that all they needed was what they had. You know, obviously Eddie Van Halen, obviously Ingve. You know, they don't need anybody else's uh, technique or style or abilities uh, that can ride high. And I, I guess that's the same, obviously, with uh, you, you know. I think it's fair to say that we made a very good. Um, 
a, a good uh, career out of what you know myself and Glenn knew on the guitar was 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 ample and it was good enough. Yeah. Talking about Eddie Van Halen, I'm just curious. I mean, because at that time when heavy metal was just really, really booming, and Ed comes out, did did he influence, like, or you know, make you change your approach to guitar playing at all? No, I don't think so. Um, I think not by then because I think we'd already got enough uh, shows and albums under our belt that we kind of had our our direction. But certainly, when we were younger, and that's a very influential uh, influential age. Yeah, of course, you know, when I was growing up um, in the late 60s and early 70s, everybody was an influence, really, because, like I say, you looked to everybody, but you tried your best not to copy people and tried to de- the, your best to develop your own style, and that's the art. It's, it's kind of until you, you've got to keep on going, maybe with a, with a blindfold on, or earmuffs, I should say, really, and... <laughs> And you can you can admire and be influenced, but never copy. You know, you've got to develop yourself. Yeah, I always say, you know, a lot of the best artists are the ones that wear their influences on their sleeves. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. And I certainly do. You know, obviously with the great Jimi Hendrix, I first saw him in 1967. I saw him a bunch of times in the 60s. You know, and I was so so in so much adoration for the guy. You know, because he was kind of the all-in package. He had all the oozed charisma, you know, the way that he looked, the way that he performed, the way that he played, you know, and he also sang as well and made great records. He seemed to be the all-in-one package, you know, but it's better to turn the other the other way, really, and try to see what you've got in your own arsenal, you know. Did you ever have that little bit of self-doubt when you're like, oh, man, like, how am I going to do that? Well... Yeah, I think to start with, really, Jeremy, you, you, you trundle along and you don't take yourself too seriously, you know, And uh, but slowly and slowly, you know, you're thinking, well, maybe I could do this, maybe not, you know, um, but you're not going to go out there and start uh, boasting or bragging or uh, cheerleading just yet, you know, you just got to cross a few uh, thresholds and hurdles and and after a while, you start to maybe believe that you can do it. You know, it's a slow process. Yeah. Uh, talking about making great records. Uh, here we are in 2023, some, you know, years later, and you're still churning out absolutely incredible riffs. Uh, the Sinner Rides Again coming out on September 29th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music, KK's Priest. Talk to me a little bit about recording this record and what was the process going into this? Were you like, we need to make another badass heavy metal record because the well, world needs it right now? Yeah, it was set of circumstances, really, mainly the pandemic, the COVID, obviously. So the first record was done really, really fast. Uh, the writing process and everything, you know, just literally a few weeks. And then, obviously, the recording process and um, and and making it, refining everything, that took a bit longer. But um, it was... It was put together really, really quick because we wanted to get out on tour, you see, and catch and catch the season, the the the, uh, the summer festivals that year. But COVID came down like a big uh, a big iron curtain and shut everything down, and and so we kind of, you know, uh, but bravely we did go ahead and release the record in October twenty one, and um, but still no show. 
pr uh, promoters and the agents were saying, you're not going to get out. There's such a backlog of bands, of gigs that have been booked and need full fulfilling. So we thought, what? I thought, right, you know, here we go again. So Christmas, um, well, January 2022, I just did the same thing again, really, shut myself away, yeah. you know, dead of winter and just thought, well, that's it. Make another record. What else can we do? And I, I thought to myself, Everybody must be doing the same thing, <laughs> and they probably were. Uh, but anyway, so we've got two Virgin albums now ready to go, brand new album, as you say. You know, I'm really um, proud of it, I think, of uh, both the records. I think they're kick-ass. And so we're looking to get out there and do extensive touring on the back of two, two uh, new records, really. Right. And the band that you've got performing with you, I mean, you guys are firing all cylinders. I mean, you got AJ Mills on second guitar, uh, Sean on drums just absolutely slamming. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, the the, um, the production of the record it sounds fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm really pleased with it. You know, the only difference with the second record is um, I just add add the fancy to uh, kind of metalize it a little bit and make it a little bit more edgy. You know, um, uh, so that's what happened. And um, and so, in actual fact, I handed it over to uh, Jakob Hansen in Denmark to mix and to master, mm -hmm. and that helped along because you know he's kind of uh, <clears throat> he's kind of the go-to guy to uh, if you want something metalizing these days, you know. So right. that was very pleasing. So uh, he he did a couple of tracks, sent them back to me. I thought this is great. Let's just get let's just go with it and get on with it. So Jakob did uh, a great job. You mean you weren't going to go to Andy Sneap and uh, get him to mix it in master? Oh, uh, no. Andy was <laughs> busy trundling around with Judas Priest somewhere. But Andy's great. What a talent he is. You know, I mean, I think he's just finished the new Accept album, and mm. now he's jumping on with uh, Saxon again. So, you know, I mean, he's such a busy guy. I don't know how, how he fits it all in, to be fair. Talking about producers and just production in general, I mean, uh, one of the one of my favorite records of all time, and and you know, I mean, it's one of the biggest heavy metal records ever, British Steel. Just the sound of that album, I think it helped carve out record, create the template for other records that came after it. When you guys were recording that album, what was the thought process there? Like, was Sonics very important to the band? No, I think we just kind of switched on to autopilot and just tried to capture what we could hear in the room, you know, which was we all we all seem to always be struggling to find the the energy and um and 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 the 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 realness of what we could hear, you know. And it's difficult because you've got all these speakers. It doesn't matter how many you've got, speakers and amps, you know, in the studio. You've got to push everything down a little cable, really, via a microphone. And that's what you're governed by. And um, and so, you know, we always kind of was a little bit frustrated. We wanted to capture the balls of the, 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 the band in the way that it sounded live. You know, and kind of being a little bit kind of uh, new kids on the block, it took us a while to get a good understanding and get a grip of of how you how you could do that. You know, so but with British Steel, we were really really quite pleased with how that sounded. You know, through the studio monitors, um, we think we got the transfer of what we were, what we wanted. You know, to come through. Uh, all of that uh, miles and miles of electrical cable and come out sounding proper ballsy. You know? 
Yeah. And I mean, working with Tom Allen, I mean, who engineered some of those great Sabbath records, I mean, like he, he kind of knew how to get a good sound. Yeah, Tom had a, a good ears, but he, he, he definitely knew his way around the studio. And, uh, and I say he really helped us to, uh, to capture where we were at at that point in time, really. Do you remember your guitar rig at that time, recording the record? Yeah, I think it was, you know, just 50 watt Marshall heads and Marshall 4 12 cabs. And both myself and Glenn were using the old trusty Range Rover treble boost, which people like Brian May, Rory Gallagher, you know, they used um, with their Vox AC30s. Uh, but it worked just as well with a 50 watt Marshall head, you know, or a 100 watt Marshall head. Uh, myself, both myself and Glenn used to use uh, go back and forth between the 50s and the 100s sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was reading a little bit of Rob Halford's book and he was talking a little bit about the songwriting process of like, you know, like writing Living After Midnight. Do you have any recollection of that time and like, you know, writing those songs? Basically, we went in to do that album, Bridges Steel, and we didn't have all of the songs. That's why we set up a, a we set up rigs in a room called a writing room. Which was actually the uh, the room where John Lennon was playing the the piano for Imagine, and Yoko was opening the shutters. That was the room that we were in uh, for our songwriting room. It, it also had, had uh, a, uh, uh, a what you call them like a foosball football game in there and a television. Um, so it was our hangout room, really, and songwriting room. Um, but yeah, we would. We would we would do work all day long, and then we would kind of go to the pub, come back from the pub, and and then pick up the guitars and just hammer out some riffs and try to look for some the new songs that we hadn't written yet. So that's kind of what we did. And songs like the Rage and stuff like that we put together in that room, you know. And uh, and as you say, um, everything else that we didn't have. At that point, we kind of knocked out the riffs um, kind of later in the evening. And I think that's where um, I guess it was after midnight, you know. Um, and uh, sometimes we'd be in bed and we could, hit, you know, it might be Glenn or myself banging out riffs, which is really annoying. But inevitably, you'd get up and go down and, and put the song together, you know. So um, because we needed the songs. Right. Talk about arrangement a little bit. I mean, like, you know, you listen to the drum intro in Living After Midnight or like that, you know, first snare hit on Breaking the Law. Like, was that intentional? Was that, you know, was that like the band or was that the producer in the studio? Like, where did the stuff like that come from, like arrangement wise? I think it was um, just the band, really. Everything really came from the band. I think um, the production side of it, Tom, Tom had a good musical ear. He could uh, play keyboards really quite well. Um, Tom was good with harmonies so uh, Tom was good in that respect but from what the band wanted to do when we wanted to kick start a song I think that came from us because we knew we'd got to play everything live you know on, on stage so we thought um, that's how it came about you know and um, and yeah I mean I think the whole album was was recorded in a month, really, even including putting new songs together. Wow. So it happened very fast. Yeah, yeah. Was this record, the new one, 
sort of the same thing? Was it like a fast yeah. process? Yeah, absolutely. It was great because there was just, I mean, I, I used to be the sole writer back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, before Graham joined the band. And, uh, and, um, and, but this time, but obviously, so we were always a collaboration, myself, Glenn, and Rob, and everything we did was, was great. And I wouldn't change a thing for the world. I'm very proud of it all. But it was kind of nice on these records just to shut myself away and, and just get on with it, you know, at my pace. Um, that was kind of nice. And I was very, very pleasantly surprised how fast I could, uh, just put everything down. How does the song work for you? Does it start with a riff or do you have a song title and a melody? Yeah, I like the song title first. I like that, you know, and that just leads to everything else uh, that comes after it, you know, but it's got to be, I like the titles that I know they're automatically going to connect with an audience. Songs like Living After Midnight or Breaking the Law also, you know, songs like that, that's an automatic connection there because we can all relate to those, you know. Um, and same with songs like, um, you know, One More Shot at Glory or Wash Away Your Sins or Pledge Your Souls or, you know, Metal Through and Through. I just know that those songs are going to have an automatic connection, you know. So uh, as a starting point, it makes sense um, that those that the lyrical direction is going to control, you know, the mood and the theme and uh, and just everything that goes with the music, you know. Uh, dictates, you know, a song title is going to uh, dictate the tempo of a song, I think. I mean, like, one more shot at glory, you you imagine, you know, uh, the, the marching armies, you know, gladiator, in a gladiatorial fashion. So, you know, you know, the tempo is going to be, you know, you, you kind of, uh, to me anyway, that's what it, that's what it means to me. Yeah. Uh, conjures up that, you know, battalions of, like, these real rough dude tough dudes that are gonna you know whatever that have this great belief of what they're marching for and what they're going to be fighting for you know and to the death so you know none of that happens at a you know ballistic tempo or something that's really really lethargic it's going to start off with the 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 armies marching to meet meet each other you know the battle is going to be more frenzied, obviously, and yeah. you can have those and you can have those uh, up tempo moments within that song, but it has to be laid down, you know, uh, to set the scene, so to speak. I love how excited you get when you talk about the process because it's like you know, it's it's almost like you you see the picture in your mind and you're trying to translate that through the fingers onto the guitar and onto the tape, and and that makes you come together very quickly lyrically and musically. You know, that gives you a direction because it gives you that kind of imagination, that l landscape, you know, it's, it, you, it starts to be filled in, you know, with all of these images and, uh, and, and that helps the, with the, putting the music together a lot, you know, an awful lot. Talk about touring. Uh, got, got the band doing a couple of shows October 7th in Birmingham at the O2 Institute all the way through to October 12th going to be at the O2 Shepherd's Bush Empire in London. Uh, what can fans expect from the live show? What's the set list going to be like? Mix of old stuff, new stuff? Well, we've just been out and did, did some festivals in Europe and look how they go. Us. People like yeah, it, it was fantastic. You can find them on YouTube. We did uh, La Hendes de Rock in, um, in Spain. 
and uh, we did um, um, Alcatraz Festival in Belgium. And, and then we had a bonus festival, which we found out the day before. So we just drove overnight from Belgium to England and did Bloodstock, and we went on before Megadeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other festivals, and we did a, a festival, Time to Rock Festival in Sweden. Uh, we headlined that as well, a night there. So that was good. That's all on the internet. And um, so people can get a good flavor of what the band's like if they tune into those shows. And what we're going to do uh, now, headline uh, our own shows in the UK and also a show in Malta in the Mediterranean, which is going to be fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're out there with Paul Giano, uh, obviously, who did the first two Iron Maiden records and, uh, and, and an old girl band outfit. Or they're kind of just type, they're like a, a female Judas Priest. Um, you know, uh, they're going to be on the band, on the, on the bill as well. So that's really exciting. And they're called Burning Witches. So check those out on the, on the internet as well. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a good fun night of metal. I mean, it sounds like a good time. It will be. Yeah. Uh, new album, The Sinner Rides Again, KK's Priest coming out September 29th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. Uh, you're doing the CDs, you got the vinyl, you got the digital download, you got tons of merch as well. So you're rocking, uh, you're rocking the KK's pre-shirt right now, which love free yeah. promo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's new merch, though, new clothes to wear, which is great. Talking about um, d- direction and uh, you know just songwriting and stuff. I mean, of course, Judas Priest sort of went through a lot of different iterations through the years, whether that be lineup or just sound in general. I mean, you go from p- Turbo Lover, the Painkiller, the Breaking the Law. I mean, yeah. it's kind of kind of all over the place. I, I, just talk a little bit about Painkiller for a second, because first of all, that was the first record with with Scott on drums. Was that an intentional statement for you guys to say, okay, we got a new drummer, we need to put something out there that's just going to blow everybody's faces off and say this is the new sound behind the kit? Yeah, I think so. I think the, with the addition of Scott, because he, we knew his capabilities from his former band, Razor X, which were a great band, you know. And um, But Scott had all of this, um, you know, uh, after after so many years, having Scott in the band with those double kits, uh, kicks again, I mean, it just gave us, uh, uh, it just opened doors for myself and Glenn to write rhythmically, musically, you know, to... Um, and we knew that Scott could play anything that we could, uh, as fast as we could play on guitar, we knew he could, uh, it could match us, you know, on the, on the kit, which was, uh, which helped a lot really, because it meant we could, uh, expand our writing after so many years, really, you know, in, res- in respect of, uh, you know, the fast, the, the, yeah, the faster side of metal, if you like. Yeah, a song like that, Painkiller, what comes first, that drum intro or the, the guitar intro? I think probably then, um, like, you know, my style and technique, you know, I will start with a, a good, strong chorus. But um, um, back then, the writing process, we all used to, like, disappear, you know, prob- usually to different countries and put lots of musical ideas down. So I would put a lot of guitar ideas down. Glenn would do the same. Rob would draft up some lyrics then we would all come together to see what we got, you know. And so lots of times a song could start with a guitar riff, you know, or a chord sequence, 
and that could be melodic, it could be blistering fast, or, you know, or sometimes Rob might just uh, hand over a song title and maybe that might inspire us. You know, but it could come from any direction, any source, really. You know, um, whereas with myself, I just think I can do faster and more methodical and just pump it all out. You know, if I start with a strong title and then look for a good sub-chorus, you know, to lead into that. And that would, you know, uh, give me the inspiration for the, the storyline and, and all of the music to follow. I don't know if you know this or not, but September 14th is the anniversary of Painkiller coming out. Cool. <laughs> so today, 33 years ago, Painkiller by Judas Priest unleashed on the world. Yeah. Well, if I had a guitar to hand, I would I'd compliment you with a riff. But Oh, my God. Go grab one. Come on. Uh, grab a guitar, KK. Uh, Please. Uh, no. That'll be in the other room, won't it? <laughs> we got time. Go grab it. Yeah, play some, play some I'll riffs. Gra I'll, I'll grab something. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, KK's Priest, man. You guys got to pick up this record. The Sinner Rides Again out September 29th. You can pre-order it now via Napalm Records. Wherever you get your music, you can pre-order the CD. You get the vinyl. You got all kinds of great merch. You catch them on the road. Uh, they got gigs all the way through through the end of October and uh, going to be great. Oh, look at that. We got the white oh, flying This is the new KK model here, but no amplifier. Oh, I can't hear it. Wait, you got to put put it closer. Put it closer. Where's the mic? It might work now. <laughs> Did you Love get it? That. Yeah, I, I, it's popping in and out, but I don't know. Do you have AirPods in or is it the, or is it the laptop? No, no. Um, I don't know how this works. No, I've got some separate speakers that you I can hear you from, but I am. Um, yeah. It's probably the microphone. I think is in this camera here. On the it? webcam, yeah. He's a bit poor, but anyway, Light there it is. This is this is the newest, latest one, all the way from San Diego. So, but anyway, happy anniversary, painkiller. Love that. Love that. Uh, well, listen, uh, I want to let you go. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. As always, we'll do this again. Best of luck with the record. Uh, man, I, I can't wait to see some some uh, some videos online. Oh, by the way, speaking of that, just real quick, a lot of bands are putting this new rule in where they don't want fans taking videos of their shows. And I think it's counterproductive because isn't that free marketing for the band? Well, number one, I don't know if you'll ever, ever stop that, but... Um... I think um, I think the fans like to do that, don't they? And um, no, I think it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, there's tons of our shows, uh, uh, videos of our shows out there um, on YouTube. And I think it's great. It's good for us to, to be able to watch watch it back as well. If we don't actually film the shows ourselves, you know. And the good thing is they're from all different angles as well. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. And because the, the thing is, you know, we don't get to see our show from the audience perspective. So watching the videos is pretty cool, I think. You know, yeah. we can yeah. see, see where we look a bit stupid or, oh, I slipped up there. Oh, hang on, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it's, um, it helps refine your gig, doesn't it, really? You can see it from the audience perspective. Yeah. And then you can go to the sound man and be like, oh, come on. Why wasn't my guitar loud enough? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is that as well, and that does happen. 
doesn't it? <laughs> hey, by the way, describe your guitar again real quick. I saw you had a Floyd Rose on there. Have you always played uh, Floyd's uh, or? Uh, yes. Um, no, no, actually, I played Taylor's before the Floyd. Hmm. Uh, but this is this is this is what's called the Floyd Rose speed loader. So what happens is you don't use the machine heads at all. The, oh, string, yeah. stop, the string stops here. So literally, you can um, if you just if you just press that down like that, the string just uh, it popped out like that. Oh. And so, for example, there's the whole string off the guitar, and um, and then you just pop it back in. Um, and so you can change the strings in about let's say a minute, something like that. So that how about just but how about tuning? Like you're so you're not even using the tuning pegs. No, you're not. No, no, you use it. Everything's done down here. Wow, I'm I'm gonna no. have to look into this. Yeah, but um, so it's pretty pretty close to being in tune now, and I've just took the string off wow. because it's it's you only actually use what's actually from from the nut here um, to the bridge there. It stops there, so. It, all of the string is in play, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's nothing surplus to requirements, which is right. pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Technology, guess, yeah. technology moves on. It's come so far. Are you still using like analog, like, you know, real tube amps, or have you gone the route of the neural DSP? And Yeah, I go backwards and forwards sometimes, you know. I mean, some of the new gear here, you know, um, clean tones are fantastic, you know. And, um, and some of the processors now got some uh, some fantastic um, some fast fantastic effects in. You know, I mean, the amount of, of different uh, delays you can get now in some of these effects. You know, I mean, it's like ridiculous. Yeah. You know? But anyway, I'll bring an amp in here next time, Jeremy. <laughs> yes, please. I'll come back for the next uh, next album anniversary. <laughs> do you hey do do you remember your guitar rig? What you, what you used on Painkiller when you guys recorded that? Um, yeah, that would have been the same setup, really. You know, myself and and Glenn. Um, you know, for many years we didn't we didn't change, um, and that's why I guess it defined. The Judas Priest sound, really, you know. Mm. Um, but even now, if I if I do plug into some new gear, my ears automatically are searching for that sound that I can hear, you know, mm. inside. So um, if you can hear it with with the stuff that's around now, you can tune it in pretty close to uh, on, on pretty much everything, you know. Um, yeah. But you have to hear it, don't you? Because it is in the ears and and the hands, I think, just as much as it is in the equipment. I think, and a lot of guitarists will say it, 90% of the tone is right here. In the hands. I, I think Eddie said that, you know, I mean, and I think he's probably, I think he's right, you know. I swear, if Eddie had have ever plugged into my rig, I'm sure he would have sounded just like Eddie Van Halen, you know, <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. Plugging into Ed's, uh, you know, those Marshalls or the 5150s, you know. D did you ever try the 5150 amps? Have you ever tried those? Um, I can't say I did, actually. You know, there's so much gear lying around, isn't, it, isn't there, you know. Yeah. Inevitably, if you do go to a studio these days, there's, there's, 
there's you know there's tons of amps so whatever's lying around you know but but like i say i think i can pretty much dial in my the tone that i want with pretty much everything really right through the 80s recording just because we're talking about recording it we said bye already but now we're still going uh I'm curious, did you guys ever use like any type of programming in the studio, like Fairlights or Synclaviers or anything like that? It was always just live the band off the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think would have happened had you guys worked with a producer like Mutt Lang or you know, like a, like a Bob Rock or Bruce Fairburn? Do you, do you think that would have changed? What What do you think that would have done to the band sound? Well, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before, really. But uh, producers certainly, you know, have the potential to to change a band completely, especially people like Mutt Lang, as you say. You know, um, he obviously knew what he wanted to to get from Def Leppard. Um, yeah, producers can have a profound effect on you know, a band's sound and potentially direction as well. Did the producers you guys worked with through the years, like, have that effect on you? Or has the sound just always been Judas Priest? Yeah, no, myself, my, my, Glenn and myself, we were always there. We were, we were always there for every note that was ever played or mixed, you know, always there. Uh, we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted, really, and... Uh, we were pretty uh, uh, as one in respect of that, I think, really. Right. Well, that's awesome. Most, yeah. Well, um, listen, this is this is great. The Sinner Rides Again, KK's Priest, available wherever you get your music, September 29th. You can go and pre-order that now. Go watch the great videos online, see the band live, and make sure you follow all of their socials. And um, go blast Painkiller today because it's the anniversary. The anniversary, yeah. I'll do it right now myself. <laughs> do you have any fun? Still, still remember the chops. Yeah. Do you, do you have any fond memories of recording that record, just specifically because it's the anniversary? Uh, yeah, we were in the south of France, which was great. Um, it was in a very remote place, beautiful studio. Um, I think Brad Pitt owns it now. Um, I think Brad Pitt um, and someone else uh, took over the studio, bought the oh, studio. Pretty beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, we had a great time. Um, it was, like I said, it was remote, but we got on with it. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. We had some good times doing that, you know, but we were, we got stuck in, really. We had a lot of work to do, um, and we and we did it. And, uh, and Chris Tangaridis came down to produce that album. Um, you know, wonderful producer, author. How was it working with him? Was he tough in the studio? No, no, he was he was sweet. He was, uh, you know, but uh, he was a good producer, Chris. Yeah. And recording had come such a long way at that time, too. I mean, just sonically, like that record just sounds so big, like the drums and even the guitar tones. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we were fortunate on that record because I think we managed to get a guitar sound pretty much straight away, which was great because a lot of other studios, you have to really fight for it, you know. Um, but we didn't realize how, for many years, how, uh, uh, what such a big effect the preamps in the desk 
um, played a massive part, you know. And that's why some studios you'd go in and straight away the guitar sound sounded good and you just got on with it. For other studios, you had to really, really work tremendously hard, you know. Yeah. I mean, the guitar amp through an SM57 into a Neve or an SSL is going to sound completely different in the Bahamas versus yeah. in south of France. Yeah. Uh, a Neve, Trident, an old Focus Focusrite, anything like that, your guitar sounds going to sound great. They've got the big old, a lot of them have got those, you know, nice valve preamps, you know. Yeah. Was your was your recording technique always just, you know, like an SM57 right in front of the cone or? Yeah, well, we would multiple mic cabinets, you know, um, you know, have uh, mics at, uh, you know, room mics, you know, but we had close mics also. I mean, studios have got tons of mics, so why wouldn't you put four or five on a cap? We did, yeah. you know. I agree. That makes sense. All right. Well, it was great to talk with you. Um, you too, Jeremy. Best of luck with the record, and uh, yeah. we'll chat soon. Uh, yeah, please give the message to all of our fans in Canada. Thank you so much for being patient. Uh, but we're ready now to rock. We're ready to go out the door at the drop of a hat. So if the promoters want to bring us to Canada, you know, great metal territory, please do. And we'll see you real soon, you guys. Yeah, we're looking forward to getting you up here in Montreal. That will be fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you, Jeremy. An all-new episode of The Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it.